Well, good evening, everyone. It sometimes happens in times of war that those who know that they're in trouble, that they can't stand against the foe, will actually side with the enemy. That does happen. They seem to submit to their opposition, but it is generally an unwilling submission, a submission that's produced by fear. They don't want to get killed. So that type of submission is not the kind that can be trusted very much since it is forced and when that force is taken away the submission goes away also. Now there's an example of that in the conquest of Canaan by Joshua when the people of the city of Gibeon saw how Joshua and his armies had already defeated Jericho and another city called Ai. So they sent ambassadors to deceive Joshua and the Israelites into making a treaty with them. You can read about that in Joshua chapter 9 sometime. They came to Joshua and said, Your servants have come from a very far country, which they hadn't. But they were just trying to save their skins. They were, knew that they were next on the list. They hadn't come from a far country. They were a couple more cities, and they were about to be destroyed by Joshua and those armies. So it was a submission of fear. Much later, King David tells of some foreign people who served him, but it was a submission of fear, which was, again, deceptive. So why don't we turn to Psalm 18. We're going to start there as far as looking into the scriptures. Psalm 18. And verse 43. Psalm 18, verse 43 says, This is David speaking, Thou hast delivered me from the contentions of the people. Thou hast placed me as head of of the nations, a people whom I have not known serve me. As soon as they hear, they obey me. Foreigners submit to me. Foreigners fade away and come trembling out of their fortresses. Now, if you have a New American Standard and it has the little notes, the footnotes in it, you see that in verse 44 where it says, Foreigners submit to me. Actually, that word is deceive me, and the idea is they give feigned obedience. So David is saying that he has a situation where there are people that are submitting to him, but it's a deceptive 
submitting because it's a, a feigned obedience that comes out of fear, fear of his power. Now, maybe we're not too familiar with that word feigned. I guess you could say fake uh, would be a close synonym. Uh, pretended, they make a false show. That's feigning. So that's what we're going to talk a little about here this evening, feigned obedience. Let's pray before we go on. Father, we ask for your help here that this would be profitable for our souls and for the souls of each person here. Just ask for your hand upon the time. In Jesus' name, amen. Feigned obedience. It's what David was experiencing, some of these people he calls foreigners here. And like I say, that often happens in warfare when a people know that they can't stand against the enemy. They make some kind of a submission. Now, the amazing thing is that this is the reason that some people supposedly serve God. Let's turn to Psalm 66, and we'll start with verse 1. Shout joyfully to God all the earth, sing the glory of his name, make his praises glorious, say to God, how awesome are your works. Because of the greatness of thy power, thine enemies will give feigned obedience to thee. Because of the greatness of thy power, thine enemies, God has enemies, and some of them will give feigned obedience to him. John Calvin says concerning this verse, the power of God is such as to force them into a reluctant subjection. The power of God is such as to force them into a reluctant subjection. And in the Geneva Bible commentary, this verse, uh, on this verse, it says, As the faithful obey God willingly, so the infidels, that is the unfaithful, disguise themselves as obedient out of fear. They disguise themselves as obedient out of fear. Now, a very good example of what we're talking about here is Pharaoh. When he saw the overwhelming power of God, as it was displayed there in those miracles and plagues there in Egypt, he seemed to submit to the command of God. The command was, let my people go. And a number of times he says, all right, go. Uh, why don't we just look at that real quick. Uh, Exodus chapter 8. just hit a couple high spots here because I'm sure you know the story. Exodus 8, verse 8. This is when there was this plague of frogs. 
Then Pharaoh called for Moses and Aaron and said, Entreat the Lord that he, rem- re- that he remove the frogs from me and from my people, and I will let the people go that they may sacrifice to the Lord. So, you know, Moses prays and the frogs disappear. Uh, verse 18 or 15. But when Pharaoh saw that there was relief, he hardened his heart and did not listen to them as the Lord had said. Um, then various other plagues. There was a, a time when God sent hail and, and a huge hail into the land. Uh, chapter 9, verse 27. Then, Moses sent, then Pharaoh sent to Moses and Aaron and said to them, I have sinned this time. The Lord is the righteous one, and I and my people are the wicked ones. So he says, you know, make supplication and get this terrible hail to stop. Um, make, supplica- make supplication to the Lord, for there has been enough of God's thunder and hail, and I will let you go, and you shall stay no longer. But he changes his mind. Verse 34, But when Pharaoh saw that the rain and the hail and the thunder had ceased, he sinned again and hardened his heart he and his servants. So, um, then of course the last one was this death of the firstborn. Um, Chapter 12, verse 31. Then he called for Moses and Aaron at night and said, Rise up, get out from among my people, both you and the sons of Israel, and go worship the Lord as you have said. So he said, go on, get out of here. Uh, I'm, I'm going to do what God said, let you go. But, chapter 14, verse 5. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, Pharaoh and his servants had a change of heart towards the people, and they said, what is this we have done that we have let Israel go <coughs> from serving us. So he made the chariots ready and they (coughs) took his people with him and, of course, went after uh, the Hebrews. So the point is, is that you have an example of what we're talking about here. Um, Because of the greatness of thine power, the greatness of thy power, thine enemies will give feigned obedience. There was not a real heart obedience there. So we should learn from this that mere outward displays of power often only produce an outward obedience, obedience, a superficial submission that won't last. A forced subjection produced by fear is not true obedience to God. It's not what the Bible calls the obedience of faith. It's not obedience from the heart. It's not what God desires from his people. A forced submission. There can be an external honor of God which is deceitful, brought about by fear. Of course, it doesn't deceive God. God's not deceived by it. 
but it does often pass for true religion among people, amongst mankind. Now, there's a similar verse in Psalm 81, verse 15. Psalm 81, verse 15. Those who hate the Lord would pretend obedience to him. That's what we're talking about. Pretend obedience to him. And the time of and their time of punishment would be forever. Think of that, hating God, but pretending pretending obedience. Here's an example from the New Testament. You have this man, this king, Herod. This is at the time of the birth of Christ. He knew something of the extraordinary nature of this one, this prophesied one, the Messiah. First of all, these magi show up, said we've been following a star for days and days, long time, that's led us here to Jerusalem. And then he asks to what the prophets are saying from the scriptures, what's being said about from the scriptures about this promised Messiah. And so he, they tell him what the scripture says. And so he knew something amazing was going on. So what does he do? He pretends to want to worship this promised one. Uh, Matthew chapter 2, verse 7 and 8. Then Herod secretly called the Magi, and ascertained from them the time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, because that's what was prophesied in the scriptures, he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and make careful search for the child, and when you have found him, report to me that I too may come and worship him. Now that sounds pretty good. But rather than being a worshiper, he was a murderer. He desired to kill that child that he said he wanted to worship. And in fact, in trying to do that, he killed all the children under two years of age. So here's a ruthless murderer saying he wants to worship Christ. Then you could also think of Simon the Sorcerer, Acts chapter 8. These are just a couple of examples. There's many you could point to of feigned obedience, pretended obedience. But here was, here was one that gave some pretty 
good indication of wanting to obey, it seemed, anyway. In chapter 8 of Acts, he was a person who, for a, a long time, astonished people with his magic arts, it says. But he was attracted to the teachings of Christianity, especially to the miraculous works uh, that were being done in, name, in the name of Christ. So he makes a profession of faith. He said, I'm going to be a follower. So I'm going to be an obedient one to this teaching. He makes a profession of faith. He believes and is baptized. It was good enough that those disciples and apostles <coughs> baptized him. But it's soon apparent that this was a feigned obedience. So if you're in Acts chapter 8, we'll begin at verse 18. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was bestowed through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give this authority to me as well, so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Now, was he really concerned about uh, people coming to know Christ? Was he really concerned about them receiving the Holy Spirit? No, he was, re- he was concerned about having a position of power, having this power, uh, this ability, which he probably considered almost uh, in the same category as his magic arts. Um, but Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have no part or portion in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. See, it was a heart problem. Uh, There was a feigned obedience, a pretend obedience, but there was nothing there real in the heart. Your heart is not right before God. Therefore, repent of this wickedness of yours and pray the Lord that, if possible, the intention of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bondage of iniquity. So he, he, was, he never had not been in the bondage of iniquity. He'd never been delivered. He was still living for himself, and his heart needed to be changed. Uh, he never really embraced the gospel of Christ. He never really saw the glory of the person and work of Christ. What he did see was some outward manifestation of the power of God, and he wanted that power. Well, in light of those things, I wanted to read just a paragraph or so from Jonathan Edwards. He's talking along these lines of what we've looked at here, and he says, Unbelievers never give Christ any honor on account of his glory and excellency. They may and often do pay Christ an external and seeming respect, but they do not honor him in their hearts. They have no exalting thoughts of Christ, no inward respect or reverence towards him. All their outward worship is only feigned. 
None of it arises from any real honor or respect in their hearts towards Christ. It is either only for fashion's sake to look good, and in compliance with custom, this is what other people do, this is the way to get on in society, or else it is forced and what they are driven to by fear. Through the greatness of Christ's power and for fear of his wrath, his enemies, who have no respect or honor for him in their hearts, will lie to him and make a show of respect when they have none. So, again, this idea of a feigned or pretend obedience. Well, I, I just want to make a few applications of this, and I'll, I'll uh, be done. One is, the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ will produce a willing, honest submission. Because the gospel tells us, tells me and you, much more than that there is a holy, sovereign God who rules the universe. There is a holy, sovereign God who rules the universe and is angry with me because of my sin. That's true, and I should fear him. But the gospel also tells me that he has taken the initiative to bring me to himself. Not by force, but by love. He is not an enemy that seeks to force people into submission. Rather, he is a friend who desires our good and demonstrated his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. When a person sees the true character of God in Christ, they desire to serve him out of gratitude and love. We love him because he first loved us. Our obedience to Christ should be primarily based on our love for him. And our love for him is based on his love for us, which was demonstrated to us through the gospel. So we can say this. If you don't love Christ, you don't understand the gospel. Or to put it in a positive way, if you truly believe the gospel, you'll love Christ. Submission of the heart is only secured by the love of God in Christ. His power can bring a person to their knees, but love alone wins the heart.
That's why God sent his son. His power will bring multitudes to their knees. But love alone wins the heart. If you're here tonight and you don't know the Lord, I can say this on the basis of the gospel. God does not want to be your enemy. He delights to be your friend and even more than that, your father. I wanted to read a few thoughts from A.W. A. Tozer here. He says, The God of heaven, though exalted in power and majesty, is eager to be friends with us. But sin has made us timid and self-conscious as well it might. Years of rebellion against God have, have bred in us a fear that cannot be overcome in a day. The captured rebel does not willingly, does not enter willingly into the presence of the king he has so long fought unsuccessfully to overthrow. But if he is truly penitent, he may come trusting only in the loving kindness of the Lord, and the past will not be held against him. Master Eckhart encourages us to remember that when we return to God, even if our sins were as great in number as all mankind's put together, still God would not count them against us. Now, someone who, in spite of his past sin, honestly wants to become reconciled to God may cautiously inquire, if I come to God, how will he act toward me? What kind of disposition has he? What will I find him to be like? The answer is that he will be found to be exactly like Jesus. From him, we learn how God acts towards people. The hypocritical, the basically insincere, will find him cold and aloof as they once found Jesus. But the penitent will find him merciful. The self-condemned will find him gracious and kind. The frightened, to the frightened, he is friendly. To the poor in spirit, he is forgiving. To the ignorant, considerate. To the weak, gentle. To the stranger, hospitable. By our own attitudes, we may, we may determine our reception by him. The greatness of God rouses fear within us, but his goodness encourages us not to be afraid of him. And then I wanted to read one poem that Tozer quotes. Return, O wanderer, now return, and seek thy father's face. These those new desires which in thee burn were kindled by his grace. Isn't that good? If you have a desire to come to God, it's because God put that desire there, kindled by his grace. Return, O wanderer, now return, and wipe the falling tear. 
thy father calls, no longer mourn, tis love invites thee near. If we truly believe the gospel, we will love Christ, because that's what the gospel is all about, the love of God for us in Christ. And we love because he first loved us. His power can bring a person to their knees, but love alone wins the heart. If you're wondering about God's love for you, I would invite you just to meditate on this little phrase. Christ died for the ungodly. Many times I've uh, thought of this, and I I know somebody else shared it first, but uh, isn't it true um, so often when we have any thoughts or questions or doubts about God and His attitude, all we have to do is look at the cross. And um, God demonstrates His love for us. And while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Want to know what God's like? Look at the cross. What His attitude is towards sinners. Mm 